Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Gertrude Murphy hadn't been gone from home long, but she already missed her baby. New moms will get this. Gertrude was only 19 years old, and little Ruth was her first baby with husband John. The two had welcomed the healthy girl just three months prior. Most of the time, Gertrude stayed home with Ruth, but this day she had a few errands to run and figured it'd be easier to leave the baby at home, so she asked her husband's sister for a little help. But something went terribly wrong. Gertrude at first must have assumed Ruth was sleeping when she didn't hear any baby coos or cries upon returning from her errands. But when she spotted her sister-in-law, her heart sank. Mary McKnight looked anguished as she explained the baby must have gotten tangled in the bed sheets. When I came to check on her, she wasn't breathing. Gertrude began to scream. This couldn't be happening. She'd been gone so briefly. Ruth had been fine. She'd never gotten tangled in bedsheets before. What the hell was going on? McKnight knew all too well what Gertrude must have been feeling, for she, too, had lost children. Five of them, in fact. Three died in infancy, and the other two, who'd been her absolute joys, both died before the age of five of diphtheria a horrible bacterial infection of the nose and throat that we simply don't see anymore thanks to vaccines. As Gertrude screamed and ranted and raved about the house, McKnight decided to do something about it. She went and got a pill from her bedroom and had Gertrude take it to calm her nerves. But within minutes of swallowing the pill, Gertrude began seizing and foaming at the mouth. And just minutes after that, she was dead. Her baby had died at 2 p.m. Gertrude was dead at 3 p.m. The date was April 22, 1903, and within weeks, the whole nation would be debating, were Gertrude and Ruth Murphy's deaths a heartbreaking coincidence, or was Mary Murphy McKnight a heartless serial killer? The Murphy clan lived in Kalkaska County, Michigan, about 25 miles east of Traverse City. If you know the whole Michigan as a mitten geography thing, Traverse is more or less on the ring finger, and Kalkaska is where the ring and middle fingers would meet. And this is rural territory. It's remote even even today. That's Tobin Buck, author of more than a dozen books, including one about this case. So back then, it would have been pretty wild, I think. Uh, It would have been forests and farm fields. The county seat of Kalkaska was Kalkaska Village, which had been founded as a lumber town, lumber village, technically. Aided hugely by the arrival of the Grand Rapids and Indiana Railroad, followed by the Paramarquette Railroad. At first, only a few hundred families could fit on the forest-dense land. But as lumberjacks thinned the trees, the demographics shifted a bit. I've seen pictures of just fields and fields and fields of stumps. And these camps were, you know, transient camps. So 
they would go and log an area and they'd move on. And when they finished logging the area, the farmers would come in and farm it. The Murphys hadn't started in Michigan. They came from Canada. In 1871, Father Isaiah, Mother Sarah, and their 10 children, five girls and five boys, moved to Alpena in what's called Northern Lower Michigan so that Isaiah could work in one of the area's many lumber camps as a teamster and cook. Teamster in this context wasn't a union thing. It meant the guy who cared for the horses. As Buck said, people working in these lumber camps stayed only as long as the lumber remained, so the Murphys moved from camp to camp following the work. Isaiah worked long and hard enough that in 1873, he was able to afford a tract of land in Springfield Township in Kalkaska County near picturesque Fife Lake. His plan was to ditch the lumberjack lifestyle and become a farmer instead. The family lived there happily enough, and as the years passed, the sons and daughters became adults, got married, and moved away. In 1894, Isaiah died. By then, most of the surviving kids were on their own, although daughter Mary had been widowed twice, so she moved in with her now widowed mother. Mary had also taken in her special needs niece, a girl named Anne Mullen. For a while, it was just the three of them living together in a big house that once teemed with a dozen family members. And the place must have felt hollow compared to what it once had been, and the fact that the family had endured quite a few tragedies couldn't have helped. Mary, in fact, had been so touched by tragedy that people thought maybe the poor Murphys had been cursed. Not only had Mary's husbands and five children died, but so did a sister named Sarah after their mother, who died prematurely at age 18 in 1894. A story in the Traverse City Record Eagle in September 1976 described Mary as the kindest, gentlest person in the world. She was warm and outgoing, plump and pretty, with an engaging personality. Everybody said she looked far younger than her 40 years. Now, that's not to say she was a particularly outgoing person. She would have been the type that would have liked to stand back in the corner of the room and, and watch things unfold as opposed to being the life of the party. You know, she wouldn't be the one on the dance floor. She would be the one watching the people on the dance floor. Mary had been trained in nursing and midwifery, which today I learned is actually pronounced that way and not midwifery, per Smarty Pants editor Steve Tipton. And because this was a very small rural area, Mary's neighbors kept her busy. Journalist Thomas Carr. They kept asking lovely, kind Mary to come and sit with people with relatives who were sick. Mary's first husband had been a well-to-do house painter named James Ambrose. He was 12 years her senior, and census data shows that in 1880, the couple lived with their two-year-old daughter, Minnie, and Mary's 18-year-old sister, Maddie. In two years' time, Minnie would die of diphtheria. Mary would soon become pregnant with a little girl they named May, but when May was two, she too would die of the same infection that claimed Minnie. Husband James would follow in 1887, succumbing to consumption. After James died, Mary, having endured the loss of her children and husband, moved in with James's business partner, a man named Ernest McKnight. McKnight was married, but soon after Mary's arrival, wife Kitty fell ill and died suddenly at age 29. Ernest quickly fell for Mary, and the two exchanged vows. Sadly, Ernest died in 1898 of spinal meningitis. That could have left Mary in dire straits financially, 
But luckily, both husbands had been insured for about $2,000, which combined totaled about $130,000 in today's money. She was also able to sell the land that Ernest had owned, so she had a decent nest egg, especially after moving in with her ailing mother. Matriarch Sarah Murphy wasn't in great shape. Having 10 children will do that to a woman. Not only that, but she also kept the farm going after her husband's death, and that was backbreaking work. It showed in the way Sarah stooped, her spine curved forward like a shepherd's hook. As such, Mary was the de facto head of the Murphy household once she moved back into her mother's home. Among Sarah's sons was a man named John, who, in 1902, had married a young woman named Gertrude. John had bought 40 acres of land that he intended to farm, but he made a pit stop living with his mom as Gertrude had the couple's first child, a little girl they named Ruth. As described at the start of the episode, Gertrude and Ruth sadly died in April 1903. Ruth's cause of death was listed vaguely as spasms, while Gertrude was said to have suffered a fatal epileptic fit brought on by the shock of her baby's death. No postmortem examination was conducted. The funeral for both mother and baby was on April 22nd, and it was as somber an affair as you can imagine. Gertrude was placed in a casket, and then her baby was placed in her arms. This was a very strict Irish family, and there's a kind of an elaborate procedure involving wakes. They involve things like keenings, and then they take mirrors, and they reverse them on the wall, and they stop the hands of clock at the time of death, and those type of things. John was devastated. He'd gone from a father and husband to an empty shell of a man in a single afternoon. Mary hated to see him suffer. A couple of weeks into his grief, he decided to tap his sister's nursing knowledge. I'm a wreck, he said. Don't you have something to give me? Mary said she didn't, aside maybe from some pills she'd made for herself to help calm her nerves. That sounded good enough to John, who Mary later said went to her bedroom and took one, maybe two of those pills. And then he started to seize. Sarah Murphy watched in horror as John's muscles contracted terribly, pulling his face into a sinister grin and forcing his back to arch. She ran to a neighbor's house. Farmer Joe Battenfield opened the door to find Sarah distraught and gasping. Come quick, John is terribly sick, I think he is dying. Joe and his wife rushed to the Murphy house, where they found John sprawled across the bed, his feet curiously tense on the floor. John's eyes were closed, his face red, and the corners of his mouth seemed foamy. Joe fumbled with a bottle of camphor, an ingredient still used in Vicks VapoRub today, and held it to John's nose, hoping the pungent scent would snap him out of whatever fit he was having. John's eyes flickered open. It's no good, Joe, he said. I am dying. Joe argued back. It can't be that you are dying, John, he said. Yes, John said, I am gone. Hold me down, Joe. My feet will come up. As if on cue, he spasmed again, every muscle in his body seeming to contract all at once. His sister Mary wept into a handkerchief. His mother wept at the doorway. Then John was gone. Joe couldn't believe it. How could an entire branch of a family be wiped out within weeks? A woman, her baby, and now her husband all gone? How? 
It turned out Joe wasn't the only one pondering the question. The family doctor turned coroner was wondering the same thing. And after John's body was brought into him, he noticed some bizarre similarities between how his body looked and the two prior bodies. See, you've probably heard of rigor mortis, the natural stiffening of the muscles after death. Well, most people know rigor mortis usually takes a few hours to start, but what's less known is that it then disperses after about 24 to 36 hours. So within two days of death, typically the muscles are flexible again. While the doctor, Pearlie Pearsall, hadn't spent much time looking at the baby, mortality rates were insane at the time, after all, especially in a rough and rural place like Kalkaska, but he had noticed that Gertrude's muscles stayed strangely stiff all the way until burial. And now John's were stiff as well. In fact, the muscles were so tight, his feet were arched and his hands were drawn upward as though he were holding the reins of a horse. Something nagged at Pearsall, but he couldn't quite nail down what was bothering him. After all, he knew well that John had suffered from asthma his whole life, and those asthma attacks looked awfully similar to what the family said they'd seen leading up to his death. Maybe an acute attack, coupled with the shock and debilitating grief of losing his family so suddenly, had killed the poor man. But then, just days after John was buried, Mary brought forth documentation that John owed her $600 because she'd lent him money to buy those 40 acres he planned to farm. Trouble was, the clerk who had helped draft that mortgage remembered distinctly that the amount had been $200, not $600, and the document Mary presented had clearly been altered. All of a sudden, the whole town wondered, was the Murphy family really cursed? or had it simply been targeted by an angel of death? If Mary Murphy McKnight hadn't stepped forward as one of her brother John's creditors, we likely wouldn't be talking about this case today. She brought the uh, deed in to be altered, and that's, that's when they really started looking at her. Pearsall, the doctor, had felt uneasy about the triple deaths and more specifically the inexplicable stiffness of John and Gertrude's muscles, but he hadn't been able to pinpoint what was bothering him. Then he realized he had seen that reaction in death just once before, back in medical school, when an instructor had the whole class watch the torturous death of a Newfoundland dog who'd been fed strychnine poisoning for demonstration purposes. Poor dog, we wouldn't do that type of thing today. Pearsall told the sheriff, a man named John W. Creighton, his suspicions. They decided John must be exhumed from his grave and his stomach contents tested. Mary was furious. It turned out that John had worried about just such a thing, she said in anguish. She said, when I was alone with John during his last moments alive, he said to me, Mary, after I am dead, don't you ever let them dig me up. And sure enough, Here, the coroner and sheriff were aiming to disturb her beloved brother's eternal slumber. How dare they? If anything, this made the men move even faster to dig up old John. And wouldn't you know it, they ran some tests and found enough strychnine in his system to kill a dozen men. Next, they exhumed Gertrude and Ruth. They, too, had strychnine in their systems. Now, if you're not familiar with strychnine, and really, if you are, you probably shouldn't say so out loud, 
It's what one professor of organic chemistry calls a crazy complex looking piece of molecular architecture. This is Robert Stockman, a professor at the University of Nottingham, in a tutorial posted by Periodic Videos. It's a a well-known poison. These days it's used for killing rats. But in the past, it was a a medicinal compound, especially in the Victorian era. So at that point in time, uh, it was used for all sorts of ailments like headaches. It was one of the very first athletic performance enhancers, believe it or not. And of course, it's, it's a poison. It's really not useful in any of these respects whatsoever. Every time I learn about one of these now-recognized poisons having first been used as medicine, it makes me wonder what we're taking right now that will seem ludicrous by century's end. That's not to say those in the Victorian era didn't recognize that strychnine was poisonous. They did. It was routinely sold back then to kill rats, just as it's used today. But back 120 years ago, people thought that strychnine could be medicinal in small doses. It comes from the the seeds of a tree in the Philippines. And over hundreds of years, the Filipinos had used the extracts of this bean, as they called the seed, to treat various ailments. So it was a a sort of herbal type of medicine. And it works on the nervous system, so it'll give you a bit of a tingle. Doesn't take very much, though, to shift from a tingle-inducing dose to a lethal one. It takes just 10 to 50 milligrams to kill an average human. It works on the nervous system. It means that all your muscles go out of control and, you know, you die of asphyxiation of not being able to breathe because your lungs aren't working properly. When it's ingested, typically orally, it goes to one's stomach. And from the stomach, the poison crosses the blood barrier. It then gets into your bloodstream and the bloodstream then transports it around your body. This, uh, obviously, with the blood, will go to all your muscles and start to interfere with any uh, neuromuscular junctions that, that it comes across. It's not a very good murder weapon because it'll stay in the body for years traces of it, so it'll be very easily identifiable. That's not even the only reason it's a bad choice for a murderer. There are several reasons, like its taste. Strychnine is really bitter and uh, really not very pleasant at all. So again, not not the best poison because you're going to taste it in your cup of tea. (laughs) And the way the poison kills its victims is distinctive. We talked about cyanide poisoning in previous episodes, for example, in the episode last season about the Tylenol murders. If a death isn't suspicious to begin with, it's hard to spot cyanide poisoning because its symptoms mirror other possible ailments, like a heart attack. The most telltale characteristic of cyanide is its smell, so if you get that bitter almond odor past a pathologist, you might get away with murder. That's the general you, not you as in you. Don't murder people. Strychnine, on the other hand, has visual calling cards. Violent spasms, the exaggerated arching of the back, the muscles that just won't relax even long after rigor mortis should have expired. Now, both cyanide and strychnine were easy to find nationwide, particularly in places like Kalkaska County. We were an agrarian state, so these rodenticides, you know, to kill rats in the granary were everywhere. Author Tobin Buck again. There was the arsenic product, which was called rough on rats. And there was a strychnine product, which was called Paris Green. So, you know, nobody would have batted an eyelash if, if you know, a housewife of a farmer, you know, a wife of a farmer would have come and bought a pound of strychnine because they would have used it to kill the rats. After strychnine was found in her brother John's bloodstream, Mary was arrested. Sheriff Creighton didn't even wait for the exhumations of Gertrude and Ruth before locking her up. 
Mary insisted she had done nothing wrong. And believe it or not, she had a compelling argument on that front. So Mary took strychnine as a anti-anxiety medication. In the early 1900s, small doses of the heavy metal poison were used for that era's version of Valium, right? And she made her own pills. This was common of the era. Medicine was downright wild at the time. You had one group of medicines dubbed patent medicines that were generally snake oil quality bullshit. From the mid 19th century into the first few decades of the 20th, people would buy all kinds of drugs to feed their blood and aid their growth and help their bowels move. These were things like Dr. Lee's Wyndham Bilious pills, which claimed to remove pains in the head, stomach, and bowels, while also treating scurvy, colic, and jaundice. We all know that cocaine was readily available as a painkiller back in the day, but did you know it was even used to treat dandruff? I found an ad for Burnett's cocaine promoting the growth and preserving the beauty of the human hair. Beyond the patent medicines, you had people who whipped up their own concoctions at home. They'd buy the individual ingredients they wanted, say, mixing strychnine with dilute sulfuric acid and glycerin to rub along the limbs or spinal cord to heighten nerve sensitivity, and that was popular with people who suffered from paralysis or palsy. Mary McKnight saying she used strychnine to treat anxiety wasn't unheard of. And here we come to one of the more troubling parts of the case, in, in my opinion. And that's what Mary said happened. She said if strychnine had been found in John's body, it meant he'd taken one or two of her strychnine pills that she'd concocted for herself. And because she had been taking strychnine for such a long time, it seemed plausible that she had built up a tolerance that meant a therapeutic dose for her might be a lethal dose for someone with no tolerance. As Buck writes in Michigan Strychnine Saint, The Curious Case of Mrs. Mary McKnight, he believes Mary was a drug addict. Her children, all five, did not seem to have suffered the telltale spasms of strychnine poisoning. And in fact, daughter Minnie had been in someone else's care far away when she got diphtheria and died. Buck thinks the grief the woman had endured had led her to take drugs to self-medicate the pain. As such, she would have had strychnine in her medicine cabinet. Sheriff Creighton had to acknowledge this seemed feasible, as did the prosecutor looking into the case, Ernest Smith. But then Gertrude and Ruth were exhumed, and Creighton went to Mary's cell to hand her the piece of paper outlining the findings. Both mother and child had strychnine in their systems. Mary had to admit, well, I guess I must have poisoned them. Still, Mary insisted she never meant to harm them. She had given the baby, Ruth, some medicine, but that's not what she had reached for. She had said that when her brother and her wife went to work on their farmhouse and they left the, the baby in her care, that Ruth had gotten sick and she was going to give the baby antifebrum, which is a white crystalline substance, which is along the lines of a syrup of Vicocac, I think, sort of a vomiting-inducing agent. Well, Mary had her own stash of strychnine, which is a white crystalline powder. Now, if you imagine that she's high all the time, right, she simply grabs the wrong white crystalline powder and overdoses the child. Then Gertrude was so upset, she tried to calm her. I mean, maybe that too was an accident. The doses she took for herself were far too strong for a non-addict. Though it's hard to square that with the exact same thing happening two weeks later when her brother died. Buck has a different theory. I could make a case for why she overdosed the mom and dad because 
with her warped sense of right or wrong because of this long time narcotics use linked with this serious depression that was caused by the loss of all five of her children. I think maybe in her mind, she was trying to put the mom and dad out of the misery, spare them from the misery that she experienced five times over. She kept saying in that, in that confession, I never meant to harm them. I never meant to harm them. I never meant to harm them. Maybe she was telling the truth. Maybe she didn't mean to harm them. Maybe she meant to kill them. Because, having endured such grief herself, she thought it was the merciful thing to do. And that's the thing with Mary McKnight. Historians are comfortable that she killed Gertrude, Ruth, and John, plus several more. If this reminds you of the season one episode on Nanny Doss, same here. But this case came decades earlier, involved strychnine instead of cyanide, and also triggered a wave of paranoia throughout Michigan in which subsequent women, innocent ones, were accused of poisoning someone close to them. It had a major impact on the state because it created a paranoia. There was absolutely kind of like a ripple effect from these crimes. After pouring through death records of the numerous other people who died either in Mary McKnight's care or at least in her proximity, officials were, and historians are, pretty sure her body count ultimately is around a dozen. The two husbands, certainly. Likely Sister Sarah, likely one of her nieces, a teen named Eliza. There are even a few non-relatives on the list. And that's why historians are less comfortable with why she would have done all this. And could it be that she wanted others to suffer the way she had, to endure the kind of gut-wrenching loss that had left her wildly depressed and drug-addled? Or was it far more superficial? The motive that is often bantered about is that she killed people because she liked to go to their funerals and those were social occasions and she had a black taff with a dress that she liked to put on. Remember, this was a strict Irish family and funerals were huge to-dos. And as, a, as a female kinswoman of the, the deceased, she would have played a seminal role in all of this, which makes it sound kind of almost like a Munchausen spy proxy type of kind of a weird Munchausen's thing. The problem, the problem with motives in Mary is that every motive that I can come up with, there are exceptions to the rule. There are instances where she killed people that were not her family members. So if she did these things because she liked to participate in funerals, well, that sort of collapses. So yeah, motive is a really tricky thing with this particular case. And, you know, maybe she just liked to kill. He's not the only one who's grappled with motive. So did jurors. So much so that when they started deliberating the case, five voted to acquit Mary because she just didn't seem like a killer. When Mary McKnight was first taken into custody, she was, by all accounts, a physically healthy woman. She weighed some 160 pounds, which screw the newspapers for describing as plump, even if they meant it in a good way. She had like an hourglass figure, right? In the mere weeks it took for the case to reach trial, she quit eating and dropped tons of weight, like 40 pounds. It was stark enough that not only did the newspaper stories make note of it, but Sheriff Creighton and Prosecutor Smith were legitimately worried about her health. They tried to get her to eat, but of a plate of food, she'd maybe eat an orange wedge or two. They kept fruit in her cell at all times, and when she mentioned she missed buttermilk from home, one of their wives brought her buttermilk. They worried about more than her weight, too. 
When she was in custody awaiting trial, she was held in a sort of 360-degree birdcage-type cell. Now remember, this is a narcotics, a heavy narcotics user who all of a sudden now is cut off from her fix. Narcotics withdrawal wasn't a completely unknown thing back then. Hell, Aristotle recorded the effects of alcohol withdrawal, and he died in 322 BC. But withdrawal wasn't as understood as it is today, and on top of that, Mary wasn't known to be a heavy drug user. That she was going through withdrawal is something we can more easily glean looking back on the case. So when the sheriff and prosecutor saw her odd behavior in her cell, it must have been terrifying. There's lots of stories about her rattling the cages of the bar and, and yelling out and having hallucinations being visited by the ghosts of her relatives. She said repeatedly that at night, John in particular would visit her and tell her that she was forgiven. He knew her intent wasn't to hurt him or his family. Ernest Smith, the prosecutor, was so concerned at one point that he visited Mary and said, look, I'm not here to talk about the case. In fact, please don't talk about it. But you're in such bad shape that I can't help but sympathize. What can we do to help you? It seems Mary believed his intentions were pure. And I don't know, maybe they were. But Smith also was making decisions that definitely exacerbated things. For example, he and his partner, William Totten, refused to let her family see her. They even refused to let her own lawyers see her, which is something that wouldn't be allowed today. Right to counsel is recognized as a pretty fundamental part of our system these days. What's a bit funny about that, though, is that one of Mary's two defense lawyers was a guy named Joshua Boyd. Boyd had previously been William Totten's law partner. Not only that, but Boyd had married Totten's sister, and Totten had married Boyd's sister, so the two were brothers-in-law. And now Totten was helping the state prosecute Mary McKnight while Boyd was working to free her. There'd be quite a bit of animosity between those two because, I mean, in-laws, right? I mean, <laughs> that would be that would be naturally there. I mean, and that would be on a spectrum anywhere from, you know, just downright hate to, you know, friendly rivalry to show who's the better lawyer. By the way, by 1903, both of the sisters had died. So while the men were still bound through their children, there were no sisters-slash-wives there to temper things, and it seems pretty obvious that any lingering rivalry was not of the friendly variety. Reporters at the time described a scene that helps illustrate this. When Boyd and his partner, a guy named Parmius Gilbert, arrived at the jail to talk with their client for the first time, they were turned away by Sheriff Creighton. The next day, they returned only to be denied access again. This time, the prosecutors were there, and Boyd began screaming at Totten, jabbing his finger into his brother-in-law's chest. They met at the stairs going up to the jail, and they almost came to blows. I mean, that's how, you know, and he, he didn't appreciate the way Smith was handling the cutting off his client from the world. And I think that she was quite a sick woman at that point. Their anger turned to downright fury a few days later when Smith announced that Mary had unburdened herself, admitting to him that she'd been responsible for the three deaths. Headlines blared nationwide. Michigan woman confesses to three murders. She was nicknamed the Michigan Borgia, a reference to Lucrezia Borgia, the illegitimate daughter born in 1480 to Cardinal Rodrigo de Borgia, who would go on to become Pope Alexander VI. She was rumored to be a political schemer who poisoned anyone who got in her way. 
Despite the headlines and titillating nickname, however, Mary's confession was suspect from the start. Ernest Smith pieced together a, a confession based on coherent snippets that she had given throughout her days of her incarceration. And then he had her sign it. And the courts, he wouldn't even accept this. The way it was handled, the way it was obtained was so draconian that, that he had to kind of do an end around on the court system and, and to get that in front of a jury. How he did that was by not introducing the actual confession, but rather taking the stand himself to tell the jury what Mary had told him. The case was notorious enough, and those headlines about Mary's confession publicized enough, that a judge agreed to move it from Kalkaska County next door to Wexford County, though that was kind of a pointless move since the relatively big city of Cadillac was in Wexford and the newspapers there had covered the hell out of the case. Regardless, despite the jury's initial split, with the first votes being cast at a nearly even 7-5, to five, the panel kept at it until they reached a consensus. They found Mary McKnight guilty of murder. In Michigan, they could have convicted her with an asterisk. By the way, Michigan murder cases have four possible outcomes. Guilty, guilty but mentally ill, not guilty, and not guilty by reason of insanity. Mary's lawyers had worked to convince the jury she was mentally unstable, but the jury didn't agree, at least not enough to reflect it in the verdict. She was sentenced to life in prison. After she served 18 years, however, the state parole board decided she had done enough. On June 19, 1920, she was released from the Detroit House of Corrections. Reporters noted that she actually looked far healthier than she'd been described at trial's end. Wrote one, quote, Her abundant hair is still coal black with only an occasional gleam of silver about the temples. Her brown eyes are clear and her figure is erect, end quote. The world was a vastly different place in 1920 compared to her last days of freedom in 1903. McKnight had seen an automobile or two before her arrest, but they were scarce and so loud that they scared her. Around the time she was sentenced, Henry Ford had ramped up production, and now, as she left prison, cars were everywhere. She died within a few years of her release, never answering the most vexing question about her case. Why? To research this case, I read Tobin Buck's The Strychnine Saint, The Curious Case of Mary McKnight, and also interviewed the author. I also read contemporary news coverage and learned enough about strychnine poisoning that I'm probably on a no-fly list. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>